right, good morning, guys. So we are continuing sort of a series within a series, and we've been looking at this topic of spiritual gifts for the past several weeks, and this is kind of the final message of that series within the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you remember, in chapter 12, we saw that we are the body of Christ, and we're individually members of that body. So some of us are like eyes, and others of us are like noses, and eyes aren't supposed to say to noses, I don't need you, because we have all been given our place in the body of Christ for the common good, in order that we might build each other up. And then Paul, in chapter 13, said that there is a more excellent way than just to be thinking about spiritual gifts and what part of the body we are. And he said that way is the way of love. And we saw there that love is patient and kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, and that if we were to exercise spiritual gifts without love, we would be nothing. We would be like a clanging cymbal, a horrible noise that no one would want to be a part of. And we've seen that this Corinthian church, if they have an imbalance, it's that they're a very gifted church, but they are not a very loving church. And so you might think, after reading chapter 13, that Paul would say, okay, here's my solution to this whole thing. Just cool it on the spiritual gift stuff. Like, you guys need to take a break from your spiritual gifts And you need to focus on the love part because you are seriously lacking in that area. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them a vision where they're both seeking to love others and deeply desire spiritual gifts. And what we're going to see in this passage is that true spirituality A true seeking of spiritual gifts builds up the church. The test of whether you ought to use a spiritual gift within the corporate church gathering and when you are to use a certain spiritual gift is will it build up the church? Will it encourage other people? So the first thing we see in the text is what true spirituality is. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 5. He says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. So here, we find the tension of the passage. We are to pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Sometimes we have a problem with 
spiritual gifts, especially the more miraculous or mysterious ones, and we read through a passage like this, and we're like, okay, tongues and prophecy, I don't really understand what those things are, and I've seen them abused before, and so I'm going to kind of take a pass on that, and I'm just going to stick with the love part of it. And other of us, of us have had great experiences with spiritual gifts. Maybe it's been a primary way that God has brought us to himself. And so we look at the passage and we kind of skip over the first two words, pursue love, and we're like, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And maybe you even thought about this church like, man, I wish they were a little bit more spiritual, a little bit more in touch with the Holy Spirit, a little bit more desirous of the gifts. And I think what Paul would say is, you're both right. There's an and in the text. And earnestly desire the spiritual gift. So I think that our attitude as a church family should be what I'm calling conscientious openness. We should be open to the spiritual gifts, but we should be conscientious in this sense. Here's the governor on our spiritual gifts. Am I exclusively seeking my own experience or am I looking to build up the people around me? See, what's true of all of God's good gifts is it's possible to sort of have a cul-de-sac mentality when it comes to the gifts. We sort of build houses in a cul-de-sac with other people that agree with us and that are experiencing similar things as we are. And we look at everybody else and we think, well, I'm just glad I've got this gift. It's too bad that you don't have it. And God is calling us out of that cul-de-sac mentality, specifically when it comes to spiritual gifts. And he wants us to think more in terms of a super highway. He's like, okay, I don't want you to just hoard spiritual gifts and exclusively seek your own experience. I want you to transport the gifts and reach and build up and encourage as many people as possible. This is how, by the way, we should treat every gift, even the smallest thing in our lives, okay? Let me give an analogy that we can understand because we're talking about spiritual gifts, so I'm going to talk about popcorn because we all understand a lot about popcorn. I don't know about you, but I go to movie theaters mainly for the popcorn, okay? Like the movie, I can wait for it to come out, and I can download that thing and watch it at home. I don't really need to go see it in the theater. I got a nice cozy setup in my basement. That's fine, but I can't make movie theater popcorn at home. It just never quite tastes the same. So if I go to a movie theater, chances are I'm going to get popcorn. But here's what I will never do if I've got my kids with me. I mean, just imagine this scene. If I went to a movie theater with my kids, I have five kids, and I stopped at the concession stand, and I got myself a big bu bucket of popcorn, and my kids are all like, hey, can we, can we get something? I'm be quiet, be quiet. Stop talking. And I sat and I got three kids on this side, two kids on this side, huge bucket of popcorn. And the whole movie, you see me at the movie theater just munching away on that popcorn. 
talking to my kids about it, like, the extra butter, amazing. Like, you would be like, you are a horrible human being. You are awful. But we're not talking about popcorn here. We're talking about something far more important. We're talking about the ability to either push people away from Jesus or bring him close to Jesus. And Paul is simply saying, I don't want you to hoard it. I don't want you to just seek your own pleasure. I don't want you to make spiritual gifts all about you. The reason that I gave you the gifts is, yes, so that you can be blessed, but you've been blessed to be a blessing to others. So, yes, I want you to pursue spiritual gifts because spiritual gifts are good, but I want you to pursue them in a certain way that the goal is not just personal experience. It is building up the church. So here's what he does in the rest of the text. He gives the Corinthian church specifics. He takes this from the air and brings it down to the ground. And he's using two gifts tongues and prophecy as examples of how you could use a gift to build others up and how you could abuse a gift and push people away. So the first thing we see from a practical perspective in the text is what tears a church down. The type of behavior regarding spiritual gifts that would tear a church down. 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 19. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay, so the first question, especially for you new people, Maybe this is your first time in church in a while. Welcome to church. All right, we're talking about tongues. What is that? That's the first question, right? Well, there's two basic gifts of tongues that I see explained in the New Testament. The first one we encounter is in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. So what happened there is Jesus has just ascended to the Father. He tells his followers, about 120 of them, to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes on this group of people who is praying, and the text says that they begin to speak in tongues. What that means, contextually, is languages. And so there's all these people who are watching these 120 or so people speak in different languages, and like the African guy's like, I think he's speaking in my dialect. And the Greek speaker's like, I think he's speaking in my language. And so the gift of tongues could be a legitimate earthly language. 
So I've actually personally known someone who was traveling as a missionary to Haiti, spent a summer in Haiti, having not known the Creole language, and spoke Creole fluently for the whole summer by the power of God's Spirit. That would be an example of the gift of tongues. Another example of the gift of tongues is mentioned by Paul just a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Paul says there that it's possible to speak in the language of angels. Now, what I'll say about that is although that is not an earthly language, it is still a legitimate and real language. So tongues is the ability to speak a language that you never learned by direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul talks about having the gift of tongues himself. And he recommends to this Corinthian church, if you have the gift of tongues, pray for the power to interpret. Here's why. Christianity has always been and will always be a religion of the mind. It sets it apart from Eastern religion, like Buddhism, where the goal is to clear your mind and just experience this spiritual mindlessness. That's not Christianity. Christianity has content, has a message, has good news in the gospel. So Paul sees it as fruitless to be able to even pray in a tongue, but not be able to understand what you're saying yourself. So he's saying, if you're able to speak in tongues, you should pray for the power to interpret. Then he extends that principle to the corporate gathering. He says, okay, right now in Corinth, your worship service is total chaos. Like right now, if we were in Corinth, people would just be yelling out right now in all different languages. There would be no order. I would not even be able to get through this sermon because everyone would be talking over each other at the same time. And he's saying, that's pure chaos. And the reason is because no one knows what anybody is saying. So he says, a person in the position of an outsider, so I think he has two types of people in mind. One would be people who have never experienced speaking in tongues, who are legitimate believers, who have no clue what's going on and don't understand what's happening. So a believer who is on the outside of the gift of tongues, kind of thinking, wait, am I not spiritual? Am I not important? Because I certainly don't feel like I'm a part of this service. And the other person who he has in mind when he's thinking of an outsider is an unbeliever, specifically who's at church for the first time. And he's saying, that person is not going to be encouraged by what you guys are doing. That person is going to think you are out of your mind. And so, the way that I want you to think about the gift of tongues specifically, but also any gift that you would have is, am I using this gift to build other people up? And one of the tests 
of whether you're using it to build others up or not is, is it intelligible to them? Do, do they understand what you're saying and what you're doing, and are they receiving it in the way that you're intending it? Are they experiencing love and care and concern, or do they just think that you're amazing or worse, crazy? Now, this is really interesting. Paul says he has concluded that even though he speaks in tongues, that he will never use the gift of tongues in the corporate gathering. He says, listen, I have some prophetic abilities. I'm a preacher, and I would rather preach a thousand, I would rather preach five words than use a thousand words in a tongue. Why? So that I can build up the church. Okay, here's a test for us. Okay, let's say you're not at church alone this morning. But let's say, and for some of you, like this isn't an illustration, this is the real deal, what's happening right now. Let's say the person sitting next to you is a colleague that you've been asking to come to church with you for a long time, or a neighbor, or a relative, or a friend. Are you hoping that as that person is sitting next to you, that Drew is going to go off with his gift of tongues from the stage that week. Or, by the way, I don't have the gift of tongues, but if I did, it's an illustration. Or, are you hoping that I am trying to build a bridge for them using intelligible speech from the front? I think most of us would say, I'm really hoping that if I invite a friend, especially that I've been trying to get to come for a long time, that nothing crazy happens at church. Like you're even, some of you, okay, you've done this before, you're looking ahead in the teaching schedule, if you can, or trying to figure out like, what are they talking about? Like some of you, you didn't invite somebody to church this morning because you knew 1 Corinthians 14 was coming. And you're like, I don't want them to think I'm crazy. Right? So, so that's a test. All right. So is Paul saying then, with his understanding of the gift of tongues and the ways that it could be misused and all that, is he saying, I forbid for all time tongues being used in the corporate gathering? Here's what he says. This is really interesting. In 1 Corinthians 14, 27, he says, if any speak in a tongue, he's talking about the corporate gathering, let there be two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Here's why I say this is very interesting. I think Paul is doing for the Corinthian church what he is expecting from them. He is being very conscientious that they could be totally different than him in terms of their conscience and the way that they would apply his teaching. So even though he says, listen, and he is the most mature person in the room, he's saying, I would never speak in tongues in the corporate gathering. 
but I am not forbidding you to do that. And if you were going to do it, this is how you should do it. Not everybody yelling out at once, speaking in a different language with no interpretation, but I want you guys going up front one at a time. I want you speaking, but only if there is an interpretation, either from you or from somebody else in the room. So in a sense, what Paul is doing is turning the gift of tongues into the gift of prophecy. He's turning unintelligible speech into intelligible speech that would build other people up. So here's my conclusion based on this teaching. Do I go with Paul? One of the most remarkable Christians in history, church planter, church leader, writer of scripture, his maturity or conviction, or do I go with the most immature church in the New Testament? Not an exemplary church, a super immature church. The reason that I would be very hesitant to allow tongues specifically on stage in the corporate gathering is because Paul said he would never do that. I think for the most part, we're going with him. Although, I think that we need to leave the door cracked open so that if there were a very mature believer in our midst who would want to build the church up with the gift of tongues in an interpretation, maybe that would happen. So that's where I land. But here's the litmus test. Here's how you turn, here's how you turn a church upside down. Here's how you tear the church down is chaotic and unruly use of gifts where instead of seeking the upbuilding of the church, you are seeking your own experience. Okay, so if that's what tears a church down, what builds a church up? Look with me at verses 24 and 25, and then we're going to skip ahead to verse 37. But in contrast to tongues, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters... He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul is setting up a contrast here between what is not helpful in the church, unintelligible speech that is used in a chaotic way, and what is helpful, intelligible speech used in an orderly way. So this word prophecy is used in the New Testament 27 times, and 10 of them are in chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. So if there is a section in the New Testament that describes the gift of prophecy, we are in that section right now. We don't need to do a lot of cross-referencing. If I remember right, I think that the other book with the most references to the gift of prophecy would be a gospel, and it might be four references in the entire book. So this is the section that tells us what prophecy is. According to verses 24 and 25 in this text, prophecy is speech that convicts, 
calls to account and discloses the heart. And if we go back to the first text we read, verse 3, it says that prophecy is speech that is for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So here's the two categories of prophecy. Deeply encouraging speech. And the second one is deeply convicting speech. But it's not just any old speech. That's why we read verses 37 and 38. It says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Here's the rails that prophecy runs on. The revealed word of God. The apostle Paul is not saying, okay guys, whatever's encouraging, whatever is a warning, whatever's convicting, that passes as prophecy. He says it has to be in accord and in alignment with what I have said and with what I have written. We are talking about prophecy with a, with a small p, not prophecy with a big p. We're not talking about people in the church being Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're talking about people who are able to build up the church through their speech because what they say is deeply convicting because it is in accord with Scripture. Paul is a big A apostle. When he wrote this letter, he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and was writing the very word of God. So we don't believe prophecy exists in a thus saith the Lord way where we make weird predictions about the future that confuse everybody. We believe prophecy exists in a way that it brings the word of God home into people's lives. Here's what happens when a prophet speaks. Look at the text with me. It says, the secrets of people's hearts are disclosed, verse 25, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Here's what happens when a prophet speaks. You forget about the prophet and you think about Jesus. You go to a church where a prophet speaks. You don't so say, wow, that was a great sermon. Wow, that's a great speaker. Or even, wow, that's an amazing church. You say, I encountered God today. And so we pray, especially that we would have the gift of prophecy because our goal is not that people would look at us and say, wow, what a gifted church. But they would look at Jesus and see a wonderful Savior. I remember reading a biography about Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher in London in the late 1800s. And there was a newspaper man who was trying to determine which preacher in London at that time was the best. And so I think he went to four different churches, if I remember right. And 
he wrote in this article that he concluded that Pastor B was the best preacher of all of them. He said, technically proficient, amazing exegesis of the text, great sermon. And he said, because the last preacher that I heard, there was no preacher. I saw only Jesus. He's talking about Spurgeon. See, that's the goal of spiritual gifts. What we are earnestly desiring is that we would disappear. That people would see Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's got to be what we're pursuing. That's what got to be what we're praying for. That's got to be what we're asking God for. And I think this text comes at a perfect time where maybe we get into our church building and people start to notice that we actually exist in the city. Like we seem a little bit more legitimate. And I think that this text is here in Scripture for us specifically at this time and in this place as our history at church so that instead of praying that we would be known or that our church would be great, we would begin to change the tenor of our prayers and that we would pray that God would gift us in order that he would be made famous through us. So how do we earnestly desire the spiritual gifts while pursuing love. I think the key is so simple. It's prayer. If you want a gift from somebody, you go to the giver. And God is the only one who can give spiritual gifts. And here's the type of prayer that I think God would listen to. Would you make Jesus famous through me? Would you gift me so that other people could come to know him? And I think that would honor him, and I think he would become famous in our city. So let's bow our heads and pray that even now. Jesus, Would you pour out your spirit on us? That young men would prophesy and that old men would dream dreams, as the prophet Joel said, so that you would be made famous through us. As you taught us to pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would this church... And would our lives not exist for our own glory, for our own spiritual pride, but would they exist for your glory and for the benefit of others? It would bring us great joy if people would see Jesus in us. So we just, we repent, God. We say, I'm sorry that we so quickly make gifts and so many other things about us and our experience and what we want and our glory and we forget about you. 
would you fill us with a vision that is much greater than ourselves? Would we see you as you are and worship you as the famous one, as the good one, as our Savior Jesus?